Welcome to Pomegranate Health. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Today's podcast comes from a seminar I attended hosted by the Curran Foundation at St Vincent's Hospital, Sydney, featuring four fellows of the RACP, all in different specialties. The Curran Foundation funds a variety of research streams and also certain needs for equipment or staff education. In 2020, it was called upon to support an ambitious project to follow cohorts of patients presenting with COVID-19. The intention of the ADAPT study was to collect wide-ranging measures in order to characterise the disease with as little bias as possible. This was before anyone imagined that some COVID-19 patients would continue to suffer malaise long after the infection had resolved. But up to a fifth of patients would go on to report ongoing breathlessness, fatigue, chest tightness, and also what's described as brain fog. The term long COVID actually emerged first among online communities of patients, as many felt their reported experiences were treated with shrugs or even scepticism from their doctors. Many findings from the ADAPT study have been published already, and the seminar you're about to hear was a public-facing overview of the work up to December 2022. I'm going to flip the order of the presenting speakers so that you'll get the bigger clinical and public health picture before we get into the research output. So first you'll hear from Professor Stephen Foe. He's Director of Rehabilitation and Pain Medicine at St Vincent's Hospital and co-founded one of the first clinics for long COVID in Australia. He has a conjoint academic appointment between the Universities of New South Wales and Notre Dame and advises New South Wales Health's COVID-19 Clinical Council on Guideline Management. The panel was chaired by David Factor, who is the hospital's Director of Public Affairs and Media. Um, Stephen, given your role um, in the Long COVID clinic here at St Vincent's, what are the definitions of Long COVID and how do you make that diagnosis? Well, thanks for that, David. Yeah, and thank you very much for inviting me and uh, listening to some of our experiences in our Long COVID clinic. Um, The uh, WHO definition, um, which is the current one, is for the persistent of symptoms for at least two months, but the definition starts at three months. Um, Interestingly, um, this um, is underlined by the fact that you can't have these symptoms if they're caused by any other diagnosis. So it's what we call a diagnosis of exclusion. You've got to make sure that there's nothing else causing it. So um, that's very difficult for patients because they've got to be able to cope with not knowing uh, what their trajectory is. Um, But it's also difficult for the referring doctors not not knowing how much to investigate or whether to just have a watchful waiting sort of approach. And um, what we're seeing in our clinic is at least 25% of people have seen more than one specialist prior to being referred. And so there's a lot of uh, fragmentation of of healthcare because of this uh, very vague definition. So um, a lot of specialists will say, look, I've had a look at the heart, there's no problem here, Um, I don't know what the other symptoms are. And so then the GP will be in this quandary um, because there's no or very few multidisciplinary referral clinics like ours, they're going to say, well, maybe I'll ask a respiratory physician to look at you or maybe I'll ask an infectious diseases physician or... Uh, And so a patient will move um, from one to another and probably having a lot of investigations which are expensive uh, for the patient and also for the community. So the the definition um, is really about the persistence of the symptoms, but it doesn't really give us a lot more than that. 
So you, you touched on the fragmentation, mm. but what, what would be the most common uh, long COVID symptoms that, that you are seeing and what treatment options do you have for those more common kind of symptoms? So the, the most common um, symptom is fatigue. Um, it's followed by breathlessness in about a third, fatigue in about a, a half of the people we're seeing. Um, and then, it, then it's followed by mental health disorders, which are about 25%, and then cognitive problems or brain fog in about 20%. And then you can have a whole variety of symptoms from losing your hair, which isn't a real problem for me, but um, <laughs> uh, a, a lot of other symptoms that people come, come through with. Um, with fatigue, we use a multidisciplinary sort of approach. So we have um, a physiotherapists that will show a person how to exercise very carefully with a lot of feedback because some people feel a bit better and then push themselves very hard and then become overly fatigued again. So we have to measure them out. Our psychologist teaches people about pacing. Um, and um, interestingly, one of the groups of people we're seeing quite commonly to present um, is um, uh, the very high-functioning person, a person who works a lot of hours, who exercises quite hard, and then has trouble coping with the long-term effects of a viral disease. And those people, we need to sort of get them to slow down and to slowly meter out their recovery. Uh, we um, also involve an occupational um, therapists, because many of them, um, about 19% have uh, stopped working. 25% have stopped working for more than a month. So the uh, impact of getting people back to work is quite a challenge. So that's the next sort of step. So we use all those people to help this one person's fatigue and to try and control it. So um, I know... Stephen, you've got a parliamentary <laughs> delegation coming from Canberra uh, tomorrow. So I'm going to give you an opportunity for a, a dress rehearsal because I know this is the question they're going to ask you. Mm. Um, can you share with us a little bit about the potential scale of the public health problem that long COVID presents to us as a society? Uh, is it true that more than 1.4 million Australians could be affected? Uh, what sort of cost to society uh, could we expect? Well, that's a daunting question when I'm sitting amongst all these scientists. Um, uh, what I can tell you is that um, the scientific answer will be it's very hard to estimate because the number of people who had persistent symptoms with the first wave will be different to the Delta wave, will be different to the Omicron wave. And uh, we do know, the data shows that um, people who are double vaccinated who got Delta, around about 10% of them in Australia continue to have symptoms. Um, the people who got Omicron and were triple vaccinated, about 5%. Um, the WHO says that on a global scale, it's 10 to 20%. But that, of course, involves many countries that have, uh, you know, less than ideal health systems. Um, 10 to 20 per cent of the uh, Australians who've had COVID would be over a million, because 11 million Australians have had COVID. Um, New South Wales Health have tried to model this and said at least 57,000 people in New South Wales will have long COVID. So it's not insignificant. And if you uh, put that trajectory to the whole of Australia, it's going to be between 250 and 300,000, which, when you think about it, is about the number of people who have dementia. It's not uh, a, small, mm. a small category. The straightforward answer is a lot of people. Um, when we opened our clinic uh, in March of this year uh, till October, we've had 700 referrals. 
Um, and that's pretty good because we can only see about eight a week. Um, so um, we booked out until the end of next year. Um, and, um, and even though we have rejected 300 of those referrals because they've come from interstate um, and or they've come from other areas with health services, there's obviously a, quite a pressing need. Mm. Let's go now to the conception of the ADAPT study and some of its key findings. One of the principal investigators is Professor Gail Matthews, Head of Infectious Diseases at St Vincent's Hospital and also Program Head of the Therapeutics Research and Vaccine Program at the Kirby Institute of UNSW. Her co-lead is respiratory clinician Dr David Daly, whose other stream of research looks at predictors of lung transplant rejection and survival. Professor Matthews takes us back to the early days of the pandemic and the uncertainty hovering around this new syndrome for patients and their doctors. So it's really interesting, the story of ADAPT in a way, because when we set it up, and we set it up really very early on uh, in, the, in the pandemic, so um, I think our first patients were starting to be seen at St Vincent's in April 2020, mm-hmm. the end of March um, and April, um, and we had the study actually set up and, and running by um, May, which is an amazing feat if anybody knows anything about research. And, and the background to it was that when we started to see the patients coming to the hospital, um, obviously the hospital went into a, a sort of a, you know stand-up mode. Um, everybody was involved, um, uh, but clearly the, the patients were coming predominantly through to respiratory uh, medicine, um, inpatients, and to infectious diseases, where we were managing all the patients in the in the community. So um, those two departments, particularly, and that's how myself and David sort of came to co-lead the study, uh, we had no idea that long COVID was going to be a thing at this time. And we really, um, uh, I guess, envisaged it at the start, really, as a fairly short-term study. My background is very much in clinical trials and cohorts, so I'm very familiar with how to set things up in a very rigorous manner so that we collect data across the board and we collect it on a standard schedule assessments. We do the same thing on everybody. And, of course, we involve colleagues and and Bruce from neurology uh, and uh, immunologist, and and we really wanted it to be a very collaborative um, study. So we were able to set it up um, very quickly, which was amazing. Uh, And and then we started to follow people. Uh, And and any of the uh, people who are here today or online, I think we have some of our ADAPT participants, and I want to say a big thank you to those people because some of them we've been following for two years from those early days. And we followed everybody. We followed them whether they had symptoms or not, whether they were recovered or not. Um, and then it clearly, as time went on, after a few months, we started to see what the world was seeing, which was that some of our patients were just not getting better. And so it was really incredibly fortuitous that we already had this established cohort of p- patients that we were following uh, after their infection and doing standardised assessments um, from them. And that's one of the beauties, I think, of the, of the study and why it's been pretty successful in, in some of its findings. Um, the... Uh, the challenges, obviously, of setting um, a study up like this in a pandemic are, are huge because everybody is um, in crisis mode. Um, the hospital's in crisis mode in terms of um, policies and, you know, how things had to change. And we were all very much under the pump just trying to learn about so many 
different new things that were happening. I have to also have a big shout out to people like the uh, people in the ethics uh, uh, board and people in governance at the hospital who really worked incredibly hard to push things through very quickly to get this study up and running. And, and usually it takes around six months from you know thinking about a study to actually getting it started. It took us six weeks, um, despite all the challenges of having to work in a very... Um, uh, pressured environment and that's a testament to everybody who is involved in study and a, and a lot of people were. I remember back in the day in my very short thinking that such a study was a luxury we didn't have because we were in sink or swim mode and to think now sitting here how fortuitous it was on your part and, and how extraordinarily swiftly you got the study up given how multi-dimensional it was and to think now we're sitting here and I'm about to ask you a whole lot of very in-depth questions. Um, so still, Gail, um, how have the ADAPT participants and their data contributed to what we know about long COVID now? Mm. So it's, it's a good question because, you know, when you look at the literature uh, on long COVID that's out there at the moment, so um, it's taken a long time to, to come through because, as I say, research is a long-term business. Um, and what we see coming out now is, is, you know, very big data sets of, you know, tens of thousands of people, particularly from the UK and the US. And we have, obviously, a relatively small, it's a big study for one site, it's 200 patients, but it's actually a relatively small data set. But what we were able to do was because we had collected their, their cells... Um, not just their blood work, but there, there is what we call their PBMCs, the cells in their blood, which is quite, again, difficult to do, um, costly and required a lot of effort from the lab to do it, but we thought it's worthwhile doing. So what we were able to do is to marry together the cells and um, people's symptoms and then do this really elegant study, um, which was one of the first to, to, to really try and understand what was going on um, in, the lo- in the blood of people who were suffering from long COVID as opposed to those who were recovered. And what we saw was this, what we call an immunological signal, which um, was persisting out to four months and then eight months um, in people who had long COVID symptoms that just wasn't there in people who were recovered and certainly wasn't there at all in what we call our control group of people who had had other coronaviruses, which we also set up as a control group. Um, So it was one of the first bits of global evidence to really support this idea that um, there is something immunologically um, different about people who ha- were suffering from long COVID or, or at least a proportion of those people. Um, and, and that was really important because it validated for a lot of people at the time, again, a novel presentation. And I think a lot of people at the start maybe um, didn't think long COVID is a real thing, thought that people were just taking, you know, a long time to recover or they were traumatised or that, um, you know, it was in their heads or, you know, all kinds of things. And and patients told us this. Um, But for us to be able to actually measure this immunological signal and uh, and characterise it really, um, really carefully um, was very impactful. And that paper was was published in Nature Immunology, one of the top nature journals, as being one of the most um, downloaded and and cited papers in in long COVID. Um, Gail, still picking on you. Um, I understand that many of the ADAPT participants took part in in qualitative interviews about their experience of long COVID. What did this tell us? So, so often when what happens with research is you'll get a group of researchers who 
ask a question in a certain group of people and different researchers ask their question in a different group of people and so on around the same sort of disease area. Um, but what we try to do, and one of the, the powers of ADAPT, and we've still got lots of things we can sort of look at, is that because it's the same group of patients, we can link up bits of data. So we can link up the neurological data, for example, with the psychological data, with the immunological data, because we have it all in one system, if, if you like, and so it, uh, it gives a lot of power. Um, but what we, um, one of the aspects of it that we... Um, uh, involved was some of the social researchers to do some qualitative work, which is actually really important. It's more about um, looking at the patient's own experience and their own journey and their own story and their own narrative of long COVID and what it meant to them. And, you know, there were some interesting things that came out of it, but, but one of it was around patients learning to live with a new illness and, and some of the anxiety of that and how they adapted to that and how um, that changed their lives. Um, and and that, that sort of qualitative data is a really important bit of the scientific puzzle um, in what we're starting to learn about long COVID. Um, David, if I can pick on you now. Um, uh, many patients in ADAPT underwent lung function testing. Uh, what were the main effects seen on lung function for COVID recovery? Thanks, David. And look, before I start, I just want to acknowledge all of the participants, some of whom I can see in the room tonight. Um, thank you for your time and patience. Um, it's really helped us uh, create a really uh, fantastic study and we've learned so much. Um, I'd also like to thank the Curran Foundation. It's really hard <coughs> to get government-funded research and um, it was really amazing to get philanthropic donor funding early on to set up the study. Uh, and of course the study team, you know, we're, we're sitting up here, we, we kind of get the limelight as the investigators, but there's so many um, staff from the AMR, Chloe and Nicola and our biobanking staff that, that need to be acknowledged. There's so many cogs in the wheel that, that make a study like this run. So just a, just a quick thanks. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a respiratory physician and uh, we had this novel respiratory virus and, and I guess one of the main question that, that we had was what kind of effect does this virus have on people's lung function? And so we did uh, blowing tests at, at St. Vincent's Hospital. Over 100 patients did that. And um, that measures airflow in and out of the lungs, lung capacity, the sort of the efficiency of the lungs. And what was interesting is that fortunately, the majority of patients actually had normal lung function. There was a small minority of patients who had problems with lung capacity and lung efficiency. And this was mostly related to the fact that those patients had been hospitalized for severe infection. So it was the patients who really needed to go to hospital for pneumonia were the ones that we were seeing the lung abnormalities in. We have been following participants for up to 12 months with lung function tests. And I guess the good news for participants is that the majority of people with problems with their lung function tests are tending to show improvement over time. So this doesn't look like it's a sort of persistent uh, problem that gets worse in the majority of, of participants. And what we're seeing is scarring of the lungs in a very small number of, uh, of participants. So, so there, there's a, a, a silver lining and there's, there's a, a good message, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I also understand that some of the ADAPT participants uh, underwent cardiac MRI uh, to measure heart function. What did we learn from this? 
So we're very lucky at St Vincent's to have advanced cardiac imaging on campus and we were very lucky for one of the cardiology groups to allow us to use the cardiac MRI for 20 patients. And we mostly focused on patients who met our definition of long COVID, you know, fatigued, short of breath, chest tightness, going on for months after initial infection. Um, fortunately, the majority of those patients had normal function of the heart, um, but we did see some scar in, uh, in a small minority of those patients. Most of those patients then went to see a cardiologist and fortunately the scar wasn't causing any major uh, functional or structural problems of the heart and we don't think there's a, there's a, a long-term problem with that. But, I, but that, the cardiac MRI um, component of the study has really given us a really high definition look at heart function uh, after COVID and helping us identify those patients that, that might need further investigation and management with a, with a specialist. Um, so as Gail pointed out, we are now at two years plus um, after initial infection. What does the general health of the ADAPTS cohort look like? So many patients in our study completed up to 12 months of follow-up after the initial infection, but we did offer an extension for some patients to be followed up to 18 months or two years after the initial infection. And our honour student, uh, Ben Chavone, has analysed the data and it's shown some interesting results. I, I, I think feedback for the participants is that the majority of, of patients in the study had fully recovered by two years. Um, there were a group of patients who would have met the definition of long COVID when they entered the study, so at three to four months after initial infection. Interestingly, for those patients, um, there were some mixed findings. About two-thirds of those patients still did have some symptoms, and some of them reported that they didn't feel like they, even at two years, had fully recovered back to normal. Um, but the flip side of that was that we did see improvements in a lot of the assessments that we were doing. So in terms of mental health, adjusting to the diagnosis, um, quality of life, even some of the cognitive testing and the smell testing that we were doing, um, even in patients who did have long COVID, we were seeing um, some improvements. So I think there's, there's a, a kind of mixed message there. Clearly there's a cohort of patients who are, are still struggling at, at two years and we really need um, better uh, prevention and treatment for long COVID. Mm. Um, but our study has shown that there, there is improvement for a lot of people. The more common symptoms of long COVID are cognitive rather than respiratory, mental fatigue, confusion, forgetfulness, which are often wrapped together under the label of brain fog. Fortunately, the ADAPT cohort have been undergoing neurological testing from the beginning of the study. This has been led by Professor Bruce Brew AM, Senior Consultant Neurologist at St Vincent's Hospital and Director of the Peter Duncan Neurosciences Research Unit. He has spent years investigating the neuropsychological impacts of HIV AIDS and its therapies with his colleague at UNSW, Associate Professor Lucette Sizik. She, in turn, chairs the NeuroCOVID Special Interest Group of the International Neuropsychological Society. 
Here's Professor Brew describing the real-life impact that these symptoms have for patients with long COVID. So um, brain fog is a reasonably apt way of describing the problem um, because people complain that they can't concentrate, so they can't focus on what they want to uh, absorb. That translates into being forgetful and they can't um, hold their thoughts to organise things. So... Um, and so those symptoms can fluctuate. Um, sometimes they can be reasonably okay, but after some, even just reading uh, a few pages can be quite taxing. Um, and that can translate to not being able to work at all if they're high-functioning. Um, there's a particular patient who um, related that he was involved in a number of companies and... Um, would have to sort of digest the legalese and and be sure that the other party wasn't ripping him off, Um, he could no longer do that. He could, at a a face-to-face level, you would would think everything was fine. Um, A brief conversation, you'd think things were fine. But getting into any sort of depth, you'd realise that there were problems. and, And he's now employing people to actually read the documents and then go through them very slowly with him. Uh, so that he can still participate in his business, but at nowhere near the functional level. Gosh. Um, more broadly, Bruce, can you share with us the main findings of the NeuroCOVID sub-study of ADAPT and how these findings may impact how we treat and care for long COVID patients moving forward? So I think there are several findings. Um, right back when we started... Um, from a neurological perspective, we were thinking that there could be a whole host of things that we might find, and we were focused on what was happening to the patients in the context of the acute illness. We had no idea that there was this thing called long COVID. Now, what is it? What did we find? I guess the first thing is that it's real, uh, and that took some time. The second thing is that it's not psychologically based. It's not a mental health issue. Sure, lots of patients have mental health problems, understandably, but it's not driving the cognitive disturbance. Third, it's not in the non-hospitalised patients related to the severity of the acute illness. The patients who are hospitalised are a different group. They've been through a lot and they will have deficits that are related to severity of their acute illness. But in the non-hospitalised patients, it's not related to the severity and it's not related to um, their comorbidity burden. Uh, So it's a unique disorder. And uh, we were one of the first to actually recognise that and it was like bashing your head against a brick wall uh, to get people to understand. Um, So the the participants in ADAPT really contributed in a very, very significant way to understanding that as a true disease entity. Um, and we, we wondered whether it was immune activation, given that that was related to COVID, uh, looked at a number of markers, didn't find anything. And then when we dug a bit deeper, there was a particular part of the immune system which is a regulatory function of the uh, body to say to the immune system, it's time to, to switch off, game's over. Um, it, it induces what's called tolerance. 
Um, and it, it's a consequence of any insult, that insult being virus or bacteria or whatever, that send a signal to the immune system, we have to get rid of you. And, and in the context of this particular pathway, it's not switched off. Um, the, this particular pathway is overactive and it remains overactive, it produces a number of toxins, and that was the only marker, the only analyte, if you like, that was related to the degree of the presence and degree of cognitive impairment. Um, and, and, and to my knowledge, there's, there's no other marker that's been linked to the degree of cognitive impairment. So it was very unique. Um, and the other, uh, the sub-sub-study, some of the ADAPT patients um, participated in an MRI study uh, with uh, the radiologist, particularly Choga Giganti, who was very helpful. Um, and what do we find from, from that? We used some advanced MR imaging techniques to identify very subtle um, impairments of the blood-brain barrier. So there's this thing called the blood-brain barrier where the brain is semi-immunologically privileged. So you don't want the brain exposed to a whole host of toxins and, and immune parameters that the rest of the body can take, but the brain can't. Um, in COVID, particularly in, uh, in the neurologically impaired patients, there was evidence of impairment of the blood-brain barrier by this particularly sensitive technique. Not in all of them, but, but the majority. Um, and so there's cross-sectional data. Then we've got um, a small number that we've now re- had several repeat studies. And again, there's improvement in some patients' resolution to normality, which is really encouraging. And um, the other uh, aspect of the MR was looking at um, markers of inflammation and and that was very helpful in identifying yes as inflammation but it's very subtle and that does persist for longer than we thought um, tying that back to the clinical part of the study the neurological um, aspects in terms of cognitive impairment surprisingly don't budge um, when we analyze up to about a year they, some of the, there's a small increase, which statistically is significant, but probably not clinically significant. So that that's in contradistinction to a lot of the other symptoms. And Bruce, this might be a bit of a naive question, but in terms of, I mean, you've spent 40 years looking at, at uh, neural pathways for neurodegenerative uh, illnesses. Um, it, in terms of those, some of those pathways lighting up, are you seeing commonality between those? Yeah, yeah, there is. Or am I way off the mark here? So, yes, there are commonalities. And that, that isn't just interesting at a, at a biological level. It's clinically potentially significant because there are certainly reports and there's an increasing appreciation that patients who are already cognitively impaired who get COVID are at risk, not all of them, but some of them, of impairment, which is worse. It's as though it takes them down a notch in terms of their functioning. Um, so if they're demented, they will, uh, some will get worse. Right. And, 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 that, and one explanation of that may be this link to the pathway. Right. Okay. 
Um, look, we've got, we've got some time for questions both from the audience here tonight and also hopefully we'll have a little bit of time for questions from the audience online. But um, I think this, um, Craig's just going to hand you a microphone if you could. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm just wondering if research from a long, long time ago uh, to do with ME slash chronic fatigue syndrome um, contributes in any way to this because, as I understand it, that can be a typical post-viral trigger, chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. It's something that comes up a lot um, uh, because of the similarities between chronic fatigue, ME, all those syndromes, and also sort of long COVID. Um, and um, I think one of the things is is that we don't know a lot about chronic fatigue and ME, and the problem is is that it hasn't been properly studied. It's been very hard to know what was the trigger and what happened since, and then by the time people you know present often, it's very hard to disentangle what's gone on and, and so on. COVID offers us a, a really great opportunity because we have these cohorts, studies of people who've been followed from the start and then are going to be followed up over time and at long periods of time to really understand what, what, what having a virus might trigger uh, for some people. So I think COVID, if done properly, and there are very large studies now being set up of, of people with long COVID, can actually offer and hopefully some insights into the group of people who have been suffering with ME and those post-viral syndromes for, for some time. And, and to therapy, obviously, I mean, there has been no drug therapy that's been um, particularly helpful in, in those settings. But we're a long way off having uh, the answers for long COVID or for um, CFS-ME about sort of good therapeutic options. It's uh, something we're all trying to, to think about and uh, explore. So, so if I can just chip in. So in our control samples, we had healthy controls, um, coronavirus, non-COVID controls, and then CF, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome controls uh, from collaborators in Victoria. Um, this particular signature pathway activation uh, was, was quite different, was not present in chronic fatigue. So from a, from a biochemical, biological perspective, it's different. From a, from a treatment perspective, we've actually learned a bit from um, chronic fatigue syndrome because um, what we saw very early on was uh, post-exertional malaise, which has been described by um, chronic fatigue sufferers. So when we exercise people hard early on, they actually stopped. I can remember a young adolescent uh, girl, we just saw her again today after six months, who couldn't complete her HSC. Um, she was uh, an athlete at school and she insisted on exercising quite hard but then would often um, be unable to get out of bed for three or four days. And in fact, her, her HSC, she had to do with periods of lying down completely. So we realised that we had to tailor uh, the exercise to constant feedback about fatigue levels. So it has actually tempered some of the treatments. Hi, I had COVID um, early 2020 and I found it affected me neurologically. My, well, my question is, have we seen any evidence on people who have get COVID a second time or a third time, if whatever they've gained neurologically, if whether that will erode it back to 
the original level or whether it will have no impact? Um, in in oh. our experience in the clinic, people who've had long COVID from one strain, um, uh, if they get a second strain, and we've seen that in about four or five cases, uh, don't complain of long COVID a second time. So it doesn't necessarily mean if you've had it the first time that you'll get it with the other strains. Um, maybe it's because you've been vaccinated in between, maybe because the strains are different. So it doesn't necessarily follow that if you have it for one strain, you'll get it for another. And about 25% of the ADAPT patients have been reinfected um, during, uh, during the study. Um, and uh, that gives us a really nice opportunity then to look at the effect of getting reinfected on those immunological markers and, and so on and see whether it does trigger the same thing the second time around. But certainly from our, our look at the data so far, it doesn't seem to be that when you've got reinfected your um, parameters of whatever health that you're measuring go back down. Um, so uh, it sort of backs up what Steve's saying there, um, that it doesn't necessarily happen that if you've had a long COVID once and you get reinfected, you're going to get go back to you know your symptoms previously. Um, we've got someone in the audience with a question. Uh, thanks very much for such a thorough explanation. We've heard about some of the immunological markers that you picked up, some of the cardiac scarring and MRI and the neurological pathway. I presume you weren't lucky enough to do the same assays in all in the same patients to, to join the dots. Is it possible those are three entirely different markers of different syndromes? Or? I think it's a, a great question. The way we set up the study was that we did most things on most patients at the same time points. So we had patients who did have long COVID symptoms, we had patients who, who didn't, and so we were able to compare groups um, with the same sorts of assessments. I think what I've seen and what others have seen in clinic is where, that there are different clusters of symptoms. So some patients have more of a fatigue type of presentation, some have more of a brain fog, you know, problems with memory and thinking, some have more of a breathless uh, chest pain type of presentation. So I think a lot more work needs to be done to work out, you know, what are the differences or commonalities between these different clusters? Why would, why would one patient get a particular symptom as opposed to another? I don't think we're really there yet. And you've got a question? Hey, um, thanks for, I guess, like outlining the treatment plans for people with fatigue. Are there similar protocols for people with uh, things like brain fog or like loss of smell or, um, I guess, vertigo? Could you outline what those are? Uh, loss of smell is a great one because you, um, there's a system that can be... We, we train people to identify smells and it's, um, uh, it's been um, uh, developed in the United States and we've been using it in a number of our clinics. So um, that's a good question. The um, other part about brain fog, <clears throat> essentially... What we do is the treatment is to characterise it by doing the tests. Um, we often pull in a, a neurologist. Uh, we contact Bruce if we notice that there might be other symptomatology for him to review. Um, then we um, look at what function they can't do. So mostly it's work. I mean, the loss of productivity in an environment of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, low unemployment and high workforce needs is huge. So we look mostly at their work. Uh, we get an occupational therapist to do that and we try and then uh, fashion 
a return to work based on what cognitive power they have as opposed to the weakness. And then we also give them some exercise because um, this um, certainly in other neurological conditions, exercise can often improve the vascular supply to the brain. So we do, we do some of that. And um, we'll also, if there's psychological phenomena, particularly if people get depressed, which often happens because they get insight into the fact they're not functioning well, we'll treat that with psychological techniques or even medications. So it's a, a, a multidisciplinary approach and, um, and we pa- tell the people not to expect too much and slowly pace their return to work. And um, recently we discharged a lawyer back to full-time work after about six months in the program with cognitive impairment initially, doing a very slow return to work and working with his employer. There's, there's uh, only been two or three in that category because we've not been running for very long. Many thanks to Gail Matthews, David Daly, Stephen Foe and Bruce Brew for their important work, so clearly explained. And to the staff at the St Vincent's Hospital Curran Foundation for recording the seminar and allowing me to share it with you. I'll provide a link to the Foundation's homepage and a video recording of the event at our website. That's recp.edu.au slash podcast. You'll find a full transcript there as well, links to some relevant academic literature and credits to the music you've heard via Epidemic Sound. To log CPD credits for your time spent absorbing this information, just click on the My CPD link in the blurb describing this episode. I'm Mick Cabazzini, and this podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay respect to their elders past and present and their ongoing connection to the country I'm fortunate to share. Thanks for listening to Pomegranate Health and best wishes over the holiday season.